through the book of Jonah. Jonah, we are in verses 10 and 11. And uh, while you're going there, I will just explain that if you are not getting updates on Tolkien, uh, it's on Facebook, and it's a letter to the church on email. So if you're not getting those and want those, please talk to Mr. Gaiman. Um, or if you hate Facebook, talk to Mr. Gaiman. Um, you can get them that way. I don't want to take time to do that today. The Bible says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 10, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight, perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. All this is predicated on Jesus is teaching. This is a teaching moment for the Lord, for God. He starts with verse 9, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He says, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Jonah had a sin problem. Every person in here has a sin problem. We are going through Ecclesiastes in our CE hour, and if you're missing that, you shouldn't. I'm just telling you. <laughs> but the Ecclesiastes is about fixing the world's problems without God. Well, that's called Loserville. That's, that's the essence of Ecclesiastes. And yet, we follow the world's wisdom in trying to fix each other. I will tell you, that's not going to work. God gives us in this text how we help each other. Do you notice how the Lord just went after Jonah with all the sins he ever did and was in his face to correct him? Uh, nope. So then why do we? Jonah is... I tell you what, I am in love with this book, 100%. I, I have learned so much 
And last week I told you today would be the last day on Jonah. But in doing more research into the last two verses here, I am going to be a liar to you. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Because, listen, I'm learning. I, I hope you're learning. If, if you're not, then I have failed miserably. But I know I, am lear- I have learned so much through Jonah. And this morning, there have been three things that, we have, that I have been learning in this last section of Jonah. Number one, Jonah's sin is laid bare. And it's not laid bare because God tells everybody how wicked and horrible he was. Because he doesn't. But his sin is opened up for all to see after you have read the whole text. Jonah thinks too highly of himself than he ought to think. True or not true? He has no humility in this aspect. Number two... God's mercy, His grace, and His sovereignty is practically shown. And then number three, how God deals with accountability as a pattern for us to deal with each other. How many think that's a really cool thing? This morning we're only going to get to two of them. There is not time enough to get to them all. But it's interesting how the Lord sets this argument up. Look at the contrast the Lord brings between how Jonah acts and how the Lord acts. Jonah's ticked off about a plant. That's all his concern is, is a plant. How many think that's absolutely ridiculous? Now, listen, the reality is all you plant lovers think, well, yeah, why not? And, and all you animal lovers that don't like plant lovers, you're going to go, what in the world is your problem? Until we read the second part of this text. Because he does the same thing. But instead of a plant, he talks about animals. And we will discuss that and, and, and show you other verses that help us understand what that really is talking about. These last two verses will tell us the difference between how a self-righteous person views others and how a holy God views others. And we are seeing, we are seeing in Jonah a vast difference. A cataclysmic difference. Then we will see how God graciously and merciful, mercifully corrects His children. Look how it's laid out. There's pronouns. In verses, verse, chapter 4, verse 10, it says, As for you... You had compassion on this plant. You were upset about the plant. But for me, it's different. Do you see the differences he's he's going to bring about? The the fighting that's going to happen. Okay, this is what you think. This is what I see. That's how God is laying this out. God is saying, Jonah, this is what you are displaying. And this this is what I, God, is doing. Let's look at the differences between Jonah's attitude and God's attitude. First, it's obvious that Jonah continues to focus on himself while God is focusing on others. Jonah pitied the plant. 
He had compassion on the plant. Now let me let's just be honest. Let's get to the reality. Did Jonah really pity the plant? I mean, he says he does in the text, right? You were angry over the plant. You're mad that the plant's gone. It, it, that poor plant. Well, the reality is, we know if we go under that plant issue, he was ticked off about himself. We know that, but, but the text talks about Jonah being angry that the plant's gone. The, that poor plant, he had compassion on him. That plant's demise and his anger at the very foundation is motivated by self-pity. Now, is Jonah really concerned that a plant died or is he upset that his life's safety is at risk? Jonah is upset over the withdrawal of God's mercy in the form of a plant. In other words, I am, well, we'll get to it. I think I get ahead of myself. I get excited. His distress is understandable because God, in his sovereignty, grew a plant within a day. And in that plant, what did he do? He, he, he gave mercy to Jonah. Let me ask you was the plant merciful to Jonah? Yes or no? Yeah. Matter of fact, he left his own booth that he built, his shade that he built, obviously it must not have been very good, and he went to the plant. The plant is a sign of God's mercy to Jonah. And Jonah's upset that God withdrew that mercy. And his distress, his upsetness about not getting all of God's mercy, but His mercy is taken away from me, how many of you enjoy when God takes away mercy? We get frustrated, don't we? Well, how come? And we look at others and compare. They don't have to go through that. It's not fair, is our attitude. And, and to be honest with you, we know God, and that God is a God of mercy, and Jonah even says it himself. But he's upset that it was taken away from him. See, John Jonah's problem is that he was focused on himself and his own. And, and, and frankly, he, he thinks he believes he deserves God's mercy. He certainly was not concerned for the plant, for the plant's sake, nor for his enemies, Ninevites. He was focused on himself and he was mad that God took away the mercy. You say, well, what does that have to do with the story? Well, do you remember what Jonah said to God after God gave the Ninevites mercy? Try to make a deal with God. He said, God, here's the deal. You gave them mercy, but I will tell you this. Judge them. Take Away the mercy. Do you see that? How many see the similarities? Take away the mercy from the Ninevites and judge them. And if you won't, then kill me. That was the deal. God, on the other hand, was concerned with Nineveh. 
the city's destruction would have destroyed thousands of people, not to mention a multitude of animals. God's plan did not involve rescinding His mercy for that city. And Jonah hated the idea of losing God's mercy. The stakes, however, are much higher for the object of God's pity. Number one, God's first point, Jonah, the plant is not up to you. I don't know what you're angry about. You had nothing to do with this plant. The plant, God's mercy, is not up to you. Jonah's experience of the plant was completely gratuitous. In other words, this was all a gift from me, God. Jonah had no claim over the plant or right to the plant. Over which you, the Bible says, the words he uses, over which you exerted no effort, nor did you grow it, the text says. The plant was God's gift to Jonah. It shaded the prophet, but it also exposed the inadequacies of self-shading, if you will. Reality is, we can't fix people. God does. We aren't any more spiritual or wicked than others. And all of this plays into the big picture of how we deal with each other. Do we do it God's way or do we do it man's way? The verb, it's interesting, you did not grow it. How many see that there in that text? You did not grow it. It underscores the plant's role as God's instrument. The verb here, the verb that is found in you did not grow it has the same suffix, that's the end of the verb, the very foundational word that is used in the Greek is the word great. Does anybody remember the word great in the book of Jonah? You didn't grow it. You didn't make this thing great. I did. It goes right back to Nineveh. It's equating Nineveh with the plant. How many understand that? In the Hebrew word, this plant is equal to, in this teaching of God, is equal to Nineveh. Both, by the way, were made by God. Amen. And frankly, there's even more. What about the wind? Who did that? What about the storm? Who did that? What about the fish? Who did that? All of which God has employed is, has used in His prophet's education. I'm going to teach you something, Jonah. Was there another time where God grew up a plant to give humanity peace and enjoyment? You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. True? God says that God created plants and cared for them even before humans existed. God planted Eden and filled it with trees before placing Adam into it. The garden was for Adam. This is important. The garden was for Adam, not from Adam. Was Adam a Jew or a Gentile? The point is, 
God's mercy is for all He chooses. Both Jew and Gentile. Folks, Adam was not a Jewish person. That didn't happen until Abraham. God's second point was that the plant died just as quickly as it appeared. Why? The text says, which overnight appeared and overnight perished. Now, it's, it's interesting. I got stuck on this for a little while. Overnight. Well, I didn't talk about overnight before. It was in the heat of the day and God killed it. Remember that? The idea here, this is a colloquialism, if you will. It's, it came up in a day and it died in a day. That's the issue. That's what it's trying to say. The idea that the plant left as quickly as it came. Or to say it in another way, and here's the way God's trying to teach him with, God's mercy came and went within a day. God's mercy came just like that. What good is that type of fickle mercy? How many understand the question? How many know what fickleness means? You know, just just uh, not consistent, up and down and this and that. God's not that way. He never changes, amen. And yet, God is giving mercy fickly to Jonah in this sense. By the way, did that ever happen in any of the Scripture? I am not aware of any Scripture where their God was fickle with His mercy. The reason He's doing this is to teach him a lesson. He didn't grab him by the neck and said, you dirty sinner, you, you, blah, 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 and name all the sins he had, which would be an endless thing for each of us. He said, look it, I am not the type of God who comes in and gives someone mercy a day, and then instantly changes his mind, and then judges them. That's not who I am. By the way, what was the point of Israel? What were they to do? Were they to give God the glory in everything they did? Yes or no? Were they to be the, the representative of God in this world? Yes or no? Absolutely. Were they to be the mediator between God and Gentiles, if you will? Yes or no? Absolutely. Now here God has to explain to him his problem, not by getting in his face, not by calling him out. He did it by explaining. He did it with mercy. This is exactly what Jonah wished on Nineveh. I mean, he is ticked off. Jonah is absolutely mad because he's already told us he's a God of compassion and mercy in the text. And then you give me mercy for a whole day and you take it away. What are you thinking? That's not, oh, 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 okay. That's what I'm asking you to do to Nineveh. How many see that? You, 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 Jonah, he doesn't tell him this, but he shows him this. Jonah, you didn't want them to have mercy, but I gave them mercy because I'm God and that's my choice. Now you want me to show to them that I'm a fickle God and take that away and judge them. 
so let me show you a lesson. I'm going to grow that mercy for you and then take it away. In other words, how do you like it? Is God an awesome teacher? He is a phenomenal teacher. I will tell you this, a person that is born again, you don't have to get in their face about their sin, usually. All you have to do is say, you know what, I struggle with this. Or what, I don't know how really to handle this. And they want to know, a Christian, truly born-again person, wants to know how would God deal with this. Amen? And follow that example. Next week we'll get into all of that. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. When Jonah tried to get God to renege on his mercy, God is now trying to show himself to Jonah that he is not a fickle God. And this does not fit in the character of God. If God did to Nineveh what Jonah wants done to Nineveh, God would be known as a fickle God, not a merciful one. Is that not true? It's exactly what's going to happen if he would renege on his mercy. And Jonah is experiencing exactly what that looks like. And Jonah hates that so much he wants to die. God's point is, Jonah, you don't like a fickle God, do you? Why is it okay to be fickle with Nineveh, but not with you? I'm not a fickle God, and you know I am not. I am just trying to get to you to see that I have, will have mercy on all, not just Israel. I will have mercy on all. By the way, does God want to give mercy to all men? Yes or no? Does God want every man everywhere to repent? Yes or no? Absolutely. Let me ask you, if God at that time would have listened to Jonah and did what Jonah asked, how many Gentiles truly would want to know the Lord? How many get the how many are following this? It, this is going to take some thinking. It's not just a wow, okay, I it, it, you gotta think through this. There is also a side of this argument that truly makes Jonah's thinking look ridiculous. Jonah, you are distraught over a plant. I'm distraught over thousands of people. Is there a ridiculousness to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. God expresses that in the negative. So to assume Jonah's point of view for the purpose of exposing absurdity in this. But as for me, see that's, that's what it says in the text on verse 11. But as for me, must I not pity Nineveh? It's a rhetorical question, is it not? You go ahead and love your plant. That's now dead. But I will take care of tens of thousands of people that need me. Well, 
the answer to that is, well, duh, right? The answer to the question is obvious. Jonah's argument also is inconsistent. Jonah reserves the right to be distressed over his own experience of unmitigated divine judgment, but he disallows God's right to be distressed over the prospect of executing and eliminating thousands of people. Jonah is a God in his own eyes. God's right is God's right, and it's no one's job to question it so as to question God Himself and His ability. Amen. Now, can Jonah hold such a position after confessing? Deliverance belongs to God. We find that in chapter 10, or chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Jonah's position appeared all the more ridiculous as God is comparing the plant to thousands of people and animals. Now the text says 120,000 people. Is that a lot of people? How many think there were 120,000 people there? Exactly. So this is this is important, and I think I, I hope it'll be helpful for, for you. The term 120,000 is used in the text, let's just say, eight different times. That exact number. This is not intended to be an accurate assessment of Nineveh's population. Rather, this was a standard expression for a multitude of innumerable large quantities. And it's related to Near Eastern mathematics, which was based on a unit of 60. Does that make sense? When we come to see a large crowd, we say, well, there's 10,000. Well, did you number them? No, we just think that's about... When I was growing up, everybody wanted a million dollars. Did we really want exactly one million dollars or we just want a lot of money? How many understand the terms we use too? This term is the same way and I will show you why that is true. Why I believe that's true. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 5, King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Do you think there really literally were 120,000 sheep? Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. First Kings talks about the same, uh, has the same numbers, the same thing with uh, Solomon doing this. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 37, talks about uh, from the other side of Jordan of the Reubenites and the Gadites and of the half a tribe of Manasseh, there were 120,000 with all kinds of weapons of war for the battle. Did they go and count every one of those guys? There was just a huge amount. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, which we just talked about. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. This is for Pekah, the son of Remilia, slew in Judah 120,000 in a day, all valiant men. Judges chapter 8, 
there were fallen 120,000 swordsmen. The point is that the exercise of strict justice in Nineveh's case would have resulted in a significant loss of life. There wasn't just 120,000 people there. I'm going to get that. It's a large amount of people. That's what they're saying. Now, they dictate who these guys were. The 120,000 people who did what? Who did not know their right from their left. What does that mean? Here's another lesson we all need to learn. When we go to Scripture, 90% of the time, we put our culture right back in the text. That is wrong. How many heard that? You can't do that. Well, in the 80s, this is what we did, and that's what... Who cares? The context changes. Listen, if you do not have the historical context of Jonah, you're not going to get it. You will not get it. In this text, when we look at, they did not know from the right, from the left, and you can look at many commentaries, they will tell you, well, that means there was a lot of children because they hadn't been taught right from left. How many have ever heard that before? It's in the commentaries. Is that what the text was saying? No. Could it be that there were, there were a lot of kids there? Well, absolutely there was. Is, is the kids because they couldn't tell right from left? Is that a possibility? Maybe. Is there a better understanding? I'm going to give you possibly a better understanding, okay? God employed a phrase that, only, that occurs frequently with reference to the proper, proper understanding of the oracles of God. Say, what in the world did you just say? Those that knew Scripture and those that don't know Scripture. Let me ask you. Did the Jews know Scripture? Yes or no? Did Nineveh know Scripture? Yes or no? Did most of the Gentilic world know Scripture? Yes or no? So what I'm arguing for is that this 120,000 who did not know their right from their left is saying there was a... All these people didn't know Scripture. And let me show you from, from the Old Testament how that is true. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says this, according to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right and to the left. If you are going to know right and left, what he's saying is you're going to know Scripture. And you're not going to go to the wrong side or to the right side. Amen. That's one text. Proverbs chapter 4. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Talking about knowing the text, knowing the Word. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. And in that text, he's talking exactly. Don't do what the Gentiles are doing. Don't turn to the right or the left. Follow me. Amen. It's very clear that that's what he's talking about in Deuteronomy. Joshua chapter 23. Be very firm then 
to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Is the context of this, follow what Scripture says, yes or no? Absolutely it's the context of that verse in Joshua. So that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. In other words, and, and then there's another one in Psalm. Psalm chapter 144, Rescue me and deliver me out of the hand of the aliens who, whose mouth speaks deceit and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 20, this, That this heart may not be lifted up, up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. Deuteronomy chapter 5, so shall you observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Only be strong and courageous. Joshua chapter 1. Able, careful to do according to all that the law of Moses my servants command you. Do not turn from it to the what? Right or to the left? Joshua 23, verse 6 and 7. This is the last one I'll give you. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses that you will not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. So that you will not... And here's, this is so, the reason I wanted this last. It's so awesome. Listen to the context of Joshua here. So that you will not associate with these nations. The nations that what? Don't know what's the right and the left. They don't know what sin is. How many understand? They don't know what sin is. These people had no idea what sin is. Why? Why did Israel know about what sin was? The law. They didn't have the law. They had man's law, which is absolute futility, as you're noticing in our culture today. The reality is, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. It's very clear that this, this again, another... Hebraic sayism, turn not from, they didn't know their right from the left. They did not know the text of the word. They did not know the oracles of God. They did not know what sin truly was according to God. Why? They didn't know God. They did not know God. Until now. And now is the beginning. Now is the start. They have repented. These references indicate that this language is associated with Israel's access to special revelation. And the reality is, although we are not the reincarnated Israel, amen, the same thing is true today. You and I have been given special revelation through His Word and His Word alone. And all of that has to be understood. It's not kumbaya. It's not sitting about the, the, the fire and, and, and seeing Moses come out of it. 
It's reading the text of the Word. We have that privilege. Most don't. They don't. What's interesting, that this is so, I just love all the details in this. This distinguishes Israel between the right and the left. They know what's right. They don't veer to the right or the left. They keep on course. These people are all over because there's no standard. There's nothing there. Nineveh, however, had no such access to God's special revelation. And by the way, don't you think that God took that into account when dealing with Nineveh? They've not been given the truth. Now I'm going to give the truth and wow. Tens or hundreds of thousands of people repent. Wow. Finally, God concluded with a surprising final reason for His mercy. He says, there's 120,000 that don't know their right from their left. They, they've never heard the Word. They don't have the text. And then He says, as well as many animals. Why did God include the animals in this statement? Why did he do that? I will give you sometimes the best answer you can ever give anybody. I don't know. But for fun, let's see possibly why. I do have an opinion. Is that okay with you? Some say... And I'm, by the way, I'm going to refute some of these because some of these are found in our commentaries that have ulterior motives. For instance, if you had been in CE hour uh, in, in uh, early January and December, you will know that we've been talking about something called neo-Calvinism. Neo-Calvinism believes that we are to redeem every square inch of this culture. We are the, we are the great redeemer of this world. That's a problem. They get so far as to say they can preach the gospel to the rocks. So they have this extremely high view of rocks, animals, trees. Are you seeing a pattern in putting two and two together here in our world today? Do you realize that most animals have, a, have more care than people in this country? They do. Here's what some of them say. Some say because God had an intimate connection with humans and beasts. So this specific commentary says that equal equates the relationship God has with humans with beasts. I will dare say today there are many who equate Humans are on the same level as animals, even today. By the way, when God created the heaven and the earth, He created the animals for them, the humans. He created the trees for them, not alongside of them. When He created Adam and Eve, 
He created them in the image of God. Totally different than an animal. I'm not saying an animal is a, a, a wicked, horrible thing, but I'm saying that you can't go and lead an animal to the Lord. It, I cannot find in the text where the animals sin. I can't, I can't find it. I could be wrong on that, but I don't know where one is. I would say creation, and, and this is what they, they, they would say, creation um, uh, participates in redemption. I would say creation has been subjected to depravity. They do not play a part in it. They are um, affected by it. And there's a difference there. And so, to say that humans and beasts are the same, the Bible says it this way, Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what He would call them. Immediately, He brings them under the subjection of humanity. He tells Peter to rise and eat them. He tells them, eventually, whatever there is to eat, I've given this for you to eat. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, was not found a suitable helper. For me, that does not really answer the question well. Does God view animals as equal importance to humans? I'm not aware of a verse that states that. And frankly, man was created in God's image, while the text says nothing about animals created in His image. So that's one argument that many of them use, and I would say I disagree with it. And by the way, many of them are sympathetic and say, we don't really know, but this is the best I can do to guess. Number two, some argue that this statement brings back to our minds the king of Nineveh's decree from Jonah chapter 3. And I think this is valid. He says, he issued a proclamation and it said in Jonah 3, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king of his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. I think this is valid. Although why did the king include animals? I don't know. That is probably something to do with their religion. But I have no idea. The king certainly in, involved animals in the repentance aspect. But this is an unanswered question. Why did the king include the animals? But in my opinion, it holds more water than the first argument for sure. The third argument, I couldn't find. So I am stepping on very fragile water. It's only been 20 degrees, and you know how ice does not form well on lakes at that. This is my opinion, so you can take it or leave it. What about a reflection back, not just to the king of Nineveh, but what about a reflection back to the Gentiles on the boat and the ship? Let me ask you, what did they do after the text says they feared God? 
They sacrificed. They worshipped Him. Amen? What is it when a person comes to know the Lord? Who do they want to be around? What do they want to hear? What are they excited about? They want to be worshiping God for what He's done. Right? How many? It's called the first love. How many understand the first love? I truly believe, it is my opinion, I'm not going to be dogmatic on it at all, but these people actually repented. And the next thing to do is worship. And how can you worship without the animals at that time in history? They couldn't find a Baptist church somewhere and sing songs to worship. Amen? Right? They were going to... That, the Gentiles on the boat already knew what to do. They sacrificed. I truly believe after a people's repentance and the knowledge of the oracles of God right and left, what does a truly repentant people do next? Well... According to the text that we read in Jonah chapter 1, they offer sacrifices. As the book closes, the reader is left to wonder, how did Jonah respond? Did he repent? Did he rebut? Or did he retreat further into himself? The author, who I believe is Jonah, offered not to tell us what he did. Or did, did he? Rather, the reader is left with God's question, must I not pity Nineveh? In other words, Jonah is worth sacrificing for the sake of thousands coming to know the Lord. How many understand that? reality. Now, practically, by the way, it's interesting, if Jonah wrote the book, if he did, and I don't think anybody can really be dogmatic on if he did or if he didn't, but if he wrote the book, then this is his repentance. He's blaring, laying bare his sins to all. For what reason? Don't do what I've done. He's doing exactly what God was showing. I don't know if you understood this mercy taken away and the fickleness mercy that he was showing. That was to teach he was being, God was being outside of his character to show Jonah how ridiculous he was being. Do we get that? And so God goes out of character to give him mercy for a day and then rip it out of the way to show him don't we can't rip off rip mercy away from these gentile people my character will not allow this i will have mercy on who i have mercy on and he does for at least 100 years that's why nahum is so important to this text Last week, we talked about how long, O oh Lord, are you waiting to judge the wicked? And although that question is fair, it can't be the only one and it needs to be in balance with reality that, yes, I want to go home. I want to see them judged. 
But when you first came to know the Lord, how many people did you want to see come to know the Lord? Correct answer? Everybody. Then what has changed in 20 years of being saved? Because now we hate people for what they did to us. Folks, all they need is the Lord. Someone led you to the Lord. Someone was merciful enough to say you need Jesus and share with you the good news about Christ. Amen? He is tired. Jonah has stopped asking the question why. He's tired of asking how long. And he's moved on to pressing God to act immediately by taking away that mercy. Jonah's concerns are legitimate and have been shared by many faithful saints throughout history. There is a danger, although, that such faithful questioning may turn into bitter resentment of the grace that was once a source of your joy. This is a huge deal, folks. Peter addressed this danger when he offered encouragement to beleaguered saints in 2 Peter 3, 9, and 10, which many of you have probably memorized. The Bible says the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. Or if you're reading a King James, the Lord is not slack in keeping His promises. He's not fickle. As some understand slowness, Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And we, how many have memorized that? Say, oh yeah, I know that verse. I've read it before. Has anybody read that verse or memorized it? Raise your hand. Two, three, four, okay. Can we nod our head? Does that keep less embarrassing? Okay, here's the deal. I don't think that we've read it right. God is patient with those sinners. It's not what He says. Look at the text. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient to who? Us. He's patient to you. He's not patient with the sinners involved in their sin. He's patient with us. How is He patient with us? Just like He's patient with Jonah. How many see that? We're all about, come on Lord, come and get us. Get us out of here. God's patient with that attitude. But we're here for a reason. Amen? Did that reason happen this last week? Why are you still here? We are here, many would say, to glorify God. Amen, amen, and amen. But there's only one thing we cannot do in heaven that we can certainly do here. In heaven, you're not, 
You're not going to be able to go knock on your door of your neighbor and say, hey, would you like some butter today? I heard you were out of it or something. I want to help you and, 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 and get to know them and love them and share the Gospel with them. That's not going to happen in heaven. You're going to look to the east side of your mansion and Billy Bob isn't there. He's spending eternity in hell. Why? Why is he? Because he didn't put his trust in Christ. Why didn't he put his trust in Christ? Let me ask you. Should we be telling every person about Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes or no? Absolutely. When we aren't telling people about Jesus Christ, who's God being? What, what's the word? Patient with. See, it's not about them. It's about He's patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants us to be giving the good news. He goes on and say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter's exhortation, exhortation focused on a frustration that God's people often have with the patience of God's wrath. Believers like Jonah are often tempted to view God's reluctant, reluctant wrath as indecisiveness or inconsistency. This perspective, however, is an indication that faith has turned inward and that the believer has lost sight of the big picture of God's redemptive activity. You're here to give the Gospel. That's your job. That is a job you can only do here. There is no other place. Peter redirects the concern for justice by reminding his audience of the universal scope of God's compassion. Believers are encouraged to balance their eagerness for the coming of the Lord with their opportunity to give the Gospel. There has to be a balance. And I'm telling you, dispensationalists, which if I can define it, I am, have a big problem with that. I just want to get out of here. How many have heard that? I'm just waiting for... And praise God, He is coming again. And we will be out of here. But folks, there's a reason you're here and God's put you here for that reason. There is a balance in come Lord quickly. I will tell you this. We lose sight of timing with God because here's the deal. We aren't giving the Gospel, but praise the Lord, someone gave the Gospel to me. Someone wasn't like me in giving the Gospel. They gave it to me. It's 
So there has to be a balance with Lord come quickly. With Lord help me be able to be a better witness for you with Billy Bob. Or Billy Joe. So our prayer has to be a balanced prayer. Prayer is often the painful collision of a believer's impatient hope with God's patient grace. Are you following that? We're impatient to get out of here. God's patient with His grace. He wants us to give the Gospel. How many follow that? The memory of our own salvation enables us to embrace the scandal of God's patient mercy as we impatiently anticipate and pray for our Lord's return. Peter also affirms, however, that judgment is coming. There will be judgment. Your neighbor, your family member... By the way, one of the main reasons I came to Grand Rapids, my heart burdened for them, was I have so much family up here that need the Lord. They, they simply need the Lord. And by God's grace, I have seen, well, even here, we've had multiple families that we buried. And they were able to hear the Gospel. Out of all that, I've had one cousin that keeps coming to the shop, keeps wanting to talk, and he's listening and learning. And I pray that he will come to know the Lord. I really do. Judgment is coming. It is coming. The day of the Lord is like a thief biding its time, patiently waiting for the right moment. A moment that only God the Father knows. Did you hear that? That's an important truth. Anybody who says they figured it out is a liar. And do not listen to them. And run away from them as fast as you can. Because they're, they're lying. God will not bear with sin and injustice indefinitely. There will be judgment. And in that respect, the book of Nahum is an important complement to the book of Jonah. And to be honest with you, believe it or not, there are commentators that say the end of Jonah basically say that Jonah is going to eventually see his prophecy come true. It will be destroyed. And guess what? Although I don't agree with that, it does. It does happen. Jonah's prophecy does come true. Just not in his time, but God's time. All right. How many understand how God's mercy is so gracious? Next week we will bring up some other passages of Scripture. Remember the older son and the prodigal son? It's interesting. He was ticked off. He wasn't happy that his brother repented. And he was angry over it. In a sense, Jonah, that's exactly what Jonah was at. So we'll discuss that. And then lastly, we will discuss next week, Lord willing, 
is Jonah was shown his sin from God Almighty graciously and mercifully. He didn't get in his face. He didn't, this idea, hold each other accountable by, by showing them their sin. Now, there is a truth to that, but there is a way of doing that. And God shows us how. And frankly, there's not a person in here who doesn't need to know how God deals with that, and we should mimic that. Amen? It's always graceful and merciful. And above all, it's in humility. In a sense, God never sins, right? Truly. But in a sense, do you think Jonah was taken the way back because this is way out of your character, God, how you take mercy away like that? That never happens. That's not what you are normally. What in the world? Although God never sins, He shows here, in a sense, a weakness that He doesn't have but how that we, he was identifying with mankind. I'm showing my weakness, although he didn't have that weakness. I'm just showing it to you so you can learn through this. I think there's so many lessons of how we can encourage each other by helping each other in grace and mercy, not in pharisaical way. You get my trick. Jonah was that, self-righteous man. Was he all the time? I have no idea. He, if he wrote the book, I believe he did repent. All right. There's a lot there. It's, there's a lot to think through. How many can go home and think through this more? There's a lot of thinking that needs to be going on because this is probably the most important thing I'll say this morning. God doesn't have fill-in words. In Scripture. I'm going to get it. God does not just fill in words to make it a sentence. There's reasons behind that. And we've got to study this thing. I will tell you, our studies at our, in our own Bible studies at home when you're reading Bible, don't do it just to read it. Dig in. God has given you an inquisitive mind already. Amen? What does that mean? What is he talking about here? There is no greater joy than when I, when I talk to people heading out the door. Hey, Pastor, I read this this week. What does that mean? That's so weird. I don't get it. I, can you struggle with it? I love that. That's what we live for. Amen. Not to give us a big head, but to know our great God better. Because all of us need to know God better. Amen. All right. Remember. God is being patient with us <laughs> in giving the gospel. Maybe we should help his patience out a little bit and just do what he says. Amen. All right, Mr. Gaiman, can you close us in a word of prayer? In just a moment, I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. After this morning's service, we're going to have a church dinner here, so we'll set up for that. I hope you plan on staying. Also this week, uh, we'll be having Don Watson's funeral here at the church at 11 o'clock on Wednesday.
So if you're able, come and support Joanne and her family as we have that at the church. Please stand. I'll pray and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for the power of your word and that it hits us where we live and it reminds us where we've fallen short, but we're also encouraged because you are a patient God and you are the sovereign God of the universe and there truly are no mistakes and no accidents. Help us to see your working in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and uh, just in the world as your plan unfolds. What a privilege to be yours. In Jesus' name, amen.